Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. This is the Stuff About Money podcast. I am your host, Eric Garcia, certified financial planner. I am flying solo or solo without a co-host. Xavier is out sick this morning, but we have a guest on our podcast this morning. Before I introduce you to our guest, what Xavier and I set out to do with the podcast was really we wanted to teach people stuff about money that they didn't teach you in school. Not just like the technical, formal stuff about money, how to budget, what a stock is, what a bond is, all that's important. But one of, uh, one of the things we really wanted to do was to teach people to think better about money so that you can make better money decisions. So a lot of our episodes, we do talk about how to think better about money, how we relate to money, some of the behavioral stuff that's involved with money. We also do talk about some of the more technical stuff about money. In this show, today, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited for him and looking forward to it. We have Mike Laughlin on from Morningstar. So we are going to talk a little bit more about the markets. We are going to talk a little bit more about investments and the different types of investments and what recessions are and what market corrections are and how that all impacts your portfolio. So let me go ahead and introduce Mike here real quick, and then we'll jump into this. So Mike is the head of portfolio specialist team over at Morningstar. Uh, He is responsible for partnering with financial advisors like myself on capital markets, Morningstar's views and investment products, portfolio construction, and risk management. Mike leads a team that's responsible for overall strategy, client engagement, and team development. And prior to Morningstar, Mike was at BlackRock for 12 years, and he worked as a senior portfolio consultant, head of portfolio engagement team responsible for helping advisors create and maintain customer model portfolios. He's a CFA, certified financial analyst, charter holder, and also holds the financial risk manager designation. Until recently, he also volunteered his time as a treasurer and head of finance and investments for the Berkeley Humane Society in Berkeley, California from 2016 to 2022. Mike, welcome to the Stuff About Money. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm really looking forward to this. So let me translate. Let me translate. That was a mouthful, your bio. Let me translate. You're the guy who kind of sits between us advisors and some of the market strategists and portfolio managers, and you kind of help make sense in in uh, of what they what they think. You're you're almost like a translator, right? Yeah, a translator, a liaison. We act as an extension of the investment team that speaks client, if you will. Yeah, and, and you know what we really help folks do is think about the market environments that we're in, and you know how to put portfolios together. Um, you know, something that we like to say is. Uh, in investing, risk is not bad, but there's a difference between intentional risk and unintentional risk. So we really try to help advisors, you know, uncover and make sure that the exposures and the risk they're taking are 100% intentional, 100% of the time. Cool. And, and let me let me let me correct something. I don't want to minimize your role just as like a Google Translator. You know, you're you're more than a translator. You obviously know what you're talking about. So 
it, it's a it's an apt description of, yeah. of what we yeah. uh, you know distill some of the complex topics into into you know simple easy to understand form. Because we're all not CFAs, I would I would dread having to go get my CFA de- designation. I've looked I, at it. I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, I got it in my mid twenties, um, which is a great time to, to get it. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife was incredibly supportive through the process. And, you know, to be honest, while not only did I learn a lot, it, it probably kept me, you know, uh, out of some bars and things I didn't need to be in for six months a year <laughs> while I was studying. So it's it was good. Break down real quick for our listeners. What do you, you know? The CFP designation, which I hold as the Certified Financial Planner designation. What is the CFA designation, and what does that entail? Yeah, so CFA uh, it stands for Chartered Financial Analyst. It's a three level course, if you will. So level one, level two, level three, um, focusing very broadly across the investment landscape. So you, it's really multidisciplinary. You learn about accounting and balance sheet and income statement analysis. You learn about equities and fixed income. You learn about portfolio management. You learn about economics. You learn about alternatives and derivatives. There's probably one or two sections I'm actually even still leaving out. I would say what yeah. makes it challenging is its breadth. And, uh, but it, it's such a great, at least for me, it was such a great way to learn how to think about investments from a you know just an incredibly broad landscape. Yeah, breadth and depth. I mean, it goes pretty deep. It does. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's hop into this. All right, Mike. What's one thing about money you know today that you wish you would have been taught in school? So you know, I'll take maybe more of a qualitative route to this, and I, I love the question. To me, I think it's investing, like true investing, is a great way to build wealth slowly, and uh, not a great way to build wealth quickly, if you will. And I think, uh, especially coming out of school. That maybe wasn't the exact expectation I had, but I've I've learned through time, you know, the the power of compounding um, and and how you, you like you never really want to interrupt that if you can avoid it, but um, that that is one of the most powerful forces, uh, you know, in in wealth creation and sort of just like having a plan, sticking to that plan, uh, you know, trying to avoid the emotional biases that can knock you off your plan and just remembering I'm in the investment realm for the long term uh, has been actually pretty helpful to me in my in my personal accounts over the over the years so interesting to me it seems like um the smarter someone is the simpler their answer to that question is right it's like we we've, we've been around we've seen everything and at the end of the day it comes back to it's like an ancient wisdom. Wealth made hastily dwindles, but whoever gathers little by little keeps it. Yes. Right. Wealth is built over time. Yeah. And it helps me at least remember it's okay to have a view on the market or to think something is attractive and to invest in that thing. I just try to make sure that the sizing of some of those investments that I make is is appropriate relative to my long-term portfolio. Yeah. I mean, the most important thing is to stay in the game. So you don't you don't want to make any decisions that sort of potentially put your entire portfolio at risk for not being in the game, if that makes sense. So yeah. I, so like every every season there seems to be some like investment du jour, whether yes. it's some kind of crazy new currency or some some hot new trend, whether AI. it's AI or or something and in the conversations I know that I have that I imagine that, that you might be having with advisors is 
okay, yeah, it's cool. It's going to change the game, but maybe we shouldn't put everything in there. Maybe we should, maybe we should, uh, you know, we have exposure to AI through maybe some of the big names already. We, we don't have to bet the kitchen, you know, bet the, bet the farm on it. Right. That's right. Yeah. And what's also interesting is, you know, when you do take a diversified approach to investing, it it almost by definition is never going to feel great because there's always going to be some trend that you could have had more exposure to, um, you know, in down markets when diversified portfolios typically shine a little bit better, you're on, you're outperforming, but you're still down, right? So that doesn't necessarily feel good either. So it's it's just... It's it's really important, I think, overall, especially with money, which is something that is inherently so emotional, to mm. really just try to keep your emotions in check. Um, yeah. And it's going to be hardest at the most, um, at the scariest times, if you will. But it's really important. I mean, so as an example, Morningstar puts out a, a study that we call Mind the Gap, which basically shows that um, investors underperform investments. And the reason for that is because people tend to time those things poorly. And so, you know, obviously we want to buy low and sell high, but the average investor at times tends to, you know, do the opposite. They buy high and they sell low. And a lot of that is just driven through, you know, fear and greed and, and natural human emotions. But, you know, if you can, uh, right, right now, the the numbers in our 2023 Mind the Gap survey show that over the last 10 years, investors underperformed investments by about 1.7%, which was actually mm. about 20% of the overall return. So it's 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 quite substantial, actually, um, and it's 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 just another sort of proof point in the longer trend or you know yeah. the academic research that shows that really you don't want to necessarily be trying to time the markets. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if we were able to do that, I think we, I think all of us who are in this field would probably be retired by now. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think so. And I, you know, I, I certainly from your seat, um, you might be able to confirm this. I, you know, I, it seems like the behavioral side is more than half the battle is just, you know, keeping people uh, anchored to the long term and to what really matters, which is, am I on track to reach my goal or not? Not so much. Am I underperforming or outperforming XYZ market this week, month, or quarter. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So you you said in in all that you said it never really feels great. You talk about investments, and, and we're especially in in down markets, and we are in a in a kind of market cycle where it really hasn't felt great for a really long time. And the reality is, from from like a a, a you know market performance standpoint it's not like the market has like dropped tremendously it's just like we've been in this like this this season of man there's just bad news it just seems like it's always bad news it feels bad it feels i mean to use a it feels yucky right it doesn't even feel that the first part of this year was was actually fairly good for the market um a lot of portfolios are actually positive on the year but it just doesn't feel that way and obviously, there's been talk of what recession for the past, I don't know, year and a half, two years. You know, like I always tell people, I said, look, you know, recession is always around the corner. We just don't know when. It's, it's always there. The conversations I'm having today with clients were conversations that I was having, you know, what in 2020, you know, in COVID, 2018, the fourth quarter of 2018, we could get 2011. I mean, these are conversations that seem to continually come up. 
And as humans, we seem to forget that the market eventually recovered. So what, what I want to do is not necessarily speak to the specific situation, what's going on today, because by the time people listen to this, who knows what can happen? The markets could have changed. The markets could have recovered. The markets could have dropped more. But I want to talk a little bit about you know, recession, correction, bear market. These are some terms that are getting thrown around. And you know, Morningstar does a really good job um, of really putting out content out there that I would say educates not only advisors, but but the general public. So talk talk to me a little bit about like, what's the difference between a market correction? And I'm bringing that up. This is actually pretty timely because I think on Friday, they announced that, was it the S&P technically entered correction land? Was it S&P or, or Dow? I'm not sure which one. Yeah. But what's a correction? What's a recession? What's a bear market? So I, I think the technical definitions of those would be a correction is a decline of 10% from previous high. And that's okay. about what we've seen in, in US equities since the end of July. Um, a bear market is uh, 20% decline from high. And then a recession, the technical definition I think is two quarters of negative, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, which we're not in at the moment. Um, you know, On the contrary, didn't we just have like crazy GDP growth in the, what, in the third quarter? Yeah. The Q3 number came in very hot, let's say at 4.9%, even beating pretty high expectations for where that number could be. Um, so the economy itself is actually in, in pretty good footing. And to the, to the point that you were making, it doesn't necessarily feel great, but if you think about Coming into 2023, we, we, we felt like the range of potential outcomes was pretty wide, meaning there are a lot of different paths that the market can take from here. And if you look back you know, here now at the end of October, we've actually probably been on one of the better paths uh, considering where we started 2023 that we, we could have potentially been on. Um, S&P is still positive about 9 or 10% for the year. Um, bonds have gotten a little bit negative at this point, but mm -hmm. but all things considered, um, you know, we've been in a pretty good place. And you know, on the question of recession, a lot of folks have predicted nine of the last two recessions, if that makes sense, right? So uh, <laughs> it's always dangerous to try to say, hey, a recession is imminent or coming next month, next quarter, next year. I would also maybe go so far as to say, if you are a long-term investor with a three or five or certainly like a 10-year time horizon, I don't want to minimize the impact of a recession. But from an investment standpoint, I, I, I think I would go so far as to say it really doesn't matter if one comes a month from now, a quarter from now, or a year from now. And I think you're probably likely to do more damage to your portfolio trying to anticipate it rather than just accepting the fact that recessions are inevitable, they will come and you just need to ride them out. But if you look at the data over, you know, going back to the end of World War II at different recessions that we've had, um, you know, uh, obviously 2008 and the financial crisis, tech bubble in 01, some of the recessions we had in the 80s and 70s, almost invariably, if you go three or five years out from the start of that recession, markets are positive. And that's why I say, you know, really what you want to do is just stick to the plan, ride it out. And if it happens tomorrow or next year, it doesn't necessarily matter as long as your time horizon is reasonably sufficient. Yeah. I was actually reading a Forbes article this morning. It's a, it's a little bit dated. It was from last year, but same, same idea again, because these stories repeat themselves. Yeah. You know, just talking about how do stocks perform post recession? Yep. Right. So like 12 months on average, 
the S&P 500 has returned 16% 12 months following a recession. Two years after it's returned 20%. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. And what's interesting here is 12 months before the recession, the average is only negative three. Right. So th- th- I think that, I think that, that supports your point. When you go to the data, when you look at the, uh, the objective facts, it's, it feels bad, but it's not, the data is not necessarily uh, nearly um, equivalent to our feelings. That's right. And the cause of the recession is always different, right? So financial crisis, tech bubble, uh, you know, oil shocks in the 70s. The, the, the cause is always different, but the outcome three to five years hence is essentially, or at least historically has been always the same. And if we enter a recession in the near future here, the cause again will be different. We sort of have, you know, two major wars happening. We have inflation. We have all of these, you know, things that are negative that we can point to. But I, I, I at least do think that, you know, again, three to five years hence, uh, the outcome will be the same. It's really, if you're, if you're entering retirement, um, or you're, Mm -hmm going to be translated or, or you know going from the accumulation phase to the decumulation phase those are the folks that sort of need to yeah. be most acutely aware of this because the way you really stress a portfolio long term is you are spending down principal at the same time you have a market shock it's hard to recover from that or it can be hard yeah. if it happens early in the time series um, hence the the you know the phrase i use sequence of return but again other if that's not you or your or, or a client who's listening to this if if you know you again have if the time horizons are not even that long right like you know 5 years um plus then yeah. and it, it you know it shouldn't be that that big of a deal and for accumulators this is actually a good time to to put money in the market you're you're getting it's like go, like i'm in the i'm in the market for a um a new car i want a truck this is like terrible this is a terrible time to go buy a new truck right because like you can't find you can find them like Ford's on strike, everyone's on strike, so so everything is going to go up. I do not want to go pay a premium for a truck. I want to wait till the end of the year or till they start producing more and they're on a discount. It's the same thing with the market. The market is on a discount, right? It's like the Macy's one day a year sale. Who wants to pay full price for anything? That's right. Uh, but again, it never feels good, and that's never. That's, that's the problem. That's the challenge. And it's but it's yeah. also why, you know, working with an advisor like yourself, you know, especially somebody who has, you know, the that the CFP designation or who's, you know, really spent a lot of time studying financial planning. This is why it's really important because you have a coach or you have uh, somebody who's who's alongside you helping you to not make you know, some of those again, the emotional decisions that cause investors to underperform investments. Yeah, 100%. So I was actually at a conference here and I'm, I'm, I'm looking up one of my notes. I thought it was absolutely 100% relevant to what we're talking about. Here we go. This was um, Michael Kitsis said this, who's a very prolific content creator in our space. He said, the future of financial planning is not about dispensing expert financial advice, but helping clients engage in financial behavior change. And that's really a lot of what we're talking about. Yes. It is the difference between dispensing financial advice. We, we obviously need to do that. Our clients need advice that's real specific to their situations. Um, we also recognize that as humans, we're we're subject to our emotions and our emotions are are driving a lot of our decisions, even when they don't make sense. Uh, so to your point, the, the the value of having someone alongside of you who knows your financial situation, who doesn't have the same emotional uh, investment that you have into it, 
who could speak from the outside and give advice in terms of, hey, that that doesn't that doesn't jive with what you're telling me really matters to you. Yes. That's an inconsistent decision with your value. So in a lot of our in a lot of our conversation or email exchange leading up to this, you kept referring to a, a, a concept that you and your team talk a, a lot about. It's what is it? Uh, prepare, don't predict. Yes. Let's unwind that a little bit for me because I think it's really relevant to what we've been talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give a little background, Morningstar, from an investment standpoint, we are really research-driven, fundamental value long-term investors. And the concept of prepare, don't predict is really, I, I think, starts with uh, humility to recognize that putting a point estimate on the S&P or putting a point estimate on inflation or saying a recession is imminent is A, maybe actually not even that useful to building a portfolio, but B, something that at least we don't feel we're going to be we're going to have an edge in over you know short time periods and so what we actually try to do is build portfolios that are robust to multiple different market environments or multiple different outcomes and then as time passes and those outcomes reveal themselves in a way we continually update we continually tweak we continually tilt but we never say okay you know we're going to be in a high inflation low growth regime and that's how we're going to build our portfolio we 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 look at sort of the the range of potential regimes that we could be in and we try to build a portfolio that is robust to to multiple of those regimes and by regime, you mean like economic, uh, yeah. like the, the the situation. What's the economic environment look like? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And ec- economic environment is one example. There, there are other examples. So, um, we're heading into twenty twenty four. It's an election year. Elections are good examples of this as well. Where, um, if you think back to twenty, the presidential election in twenty sixteen, or you think about you think about something like Brexit. You have this very discrete event that everyone knows is coming, but it is very difficult to actually accurately predict the outcome of those events. And so from a portfolio management standpoint, what we try to do is actually not predict the outcome of discrete events like that, but more, it's almost like we have a portfolio for scenario A and we have a portfolio for scenario B and the event happens and then we we go to the portfolio uh that correlates to the the correct outcome of that event if that makes sense but trying to predict um the probability that a specific thing is going to happen is 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 quite difficult even something that you know is coming like an election hello loyal listeners hey are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client maybe you maybe not Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. And here's what's interesting about elections, since you bring that up. You know, I've had conversations recently. I was like, oh, it's an election year. The market's going to be bad. Well, 
historically, election years are actually positive markets. Yes. Yeah. Like 12, I think to the point of like 12% up during an election year on, on average. That on average means, right, in 2008, it was down 37%. Right. Right. Um, but in 2020, it was up, you know, 15 plus percent or somewhere around there. So who knows? Right. Exactly. And that's a, that's a, that's a great example of where, you know, you, you don't want to head into some, an event like that or a year like that with the, with the assurance in your mind that, Hey, the election's going to be ugly. Markets are going to be down. I'm going to move a bunch of my portfolio to cash. And then, you know, the, the opposite is, is certainly, you know, potentially possible, if not actually likely based on some of the historical data. So, or, or even stuff like, uh, if a, if a Democrat wins, market's going to be bad. Or if a Republican wins, markets can be good. Well, that's not really what the data says. Right. I mean, the data doesn't say that. So it's very difficult. And I, and I actually appreciate when you said, when you talk about having humility, right? Yes. Predict, don't prepare. It starts with humility. It starts with, I don't know what the market's going to do tomorrow. Correct. Who, who, who predicted, who predicted, you know, Israel and Hamas going to war? Who predicted all these things? Now, I'm sure someone out there predicted, like you said, someone predicted nine you know, the last two wars, nine of the last two recessions. There's always yes. someone predicting something. Someone's always going to be right. But my question would be, how often are they wrong? Correct. Yeah. And that's the tongue in cheek right. aspect of the nine, you know, predicting nine of the last yeah. two recessions is yes, eventually there will be a recession and you will be right. But, you know, the previous seven times that you said that it didn't happen. And it's, you know, Overreacting your portfolio to those types of, you know, mental, let's say, yeah, yeah. overconfidence, mental overconfidence that that yeah. a specific scenario is going to play out. It, that's where people get themselves into trouble. You know, it's also, I think, as humans, we're not necessarily wired to like understand or interpret probability, and Mm-mm. maybe as as intuitively as we should. Even if I said to you, I'm eighty percent sure we're not going to have a recession next year. Like 20% is still a real number, right? Like yeah. we, we sort of discount that to say 80% equals 100%. And no, uh, right? Like those tail events. I don't events, know. Like I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't I'm, know. Right. And I'm obviously making those numbers up, but the, the point being, right? Like tail events happen. Um, and so you don't, this is where like, again, from a, a perspective of humility, we, we try to say, hey, we don't really think we're necessarily going to be good at predicting when these things are going to occur. What we do actually think, though, we, we will be good at, and this is where we do things like stress testing our portfolios for different scenarios. What we do actually think we have a, a reasonable edge in is understanding kind of the impact of these different scenarios as they play out and tilting the portfolios um, to uh, to respond or to take advantage of those scenarios. But we're never really ever wholesale in one specific scenario, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're not you're not you're not placing big bets. Correct. Yeah. And you know, especially in a market environment like this, where, you know, if you think about the conversation we've been having, there's positive things that you can point to. GDP growth is really strong. There's negative things you can point to. We have wars, we have inflation. So what I would characterize the market environment that we're in right now is one that is has a high degree of uncertainty. And when mm-hmm. I say uncertainty, it again means that the, just the range of outcomes from where we are today is wide. But that is different than saying, than, than being negative. It is different than being bearish. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so from a portfolio perspective, what we think the right response to an uncertain environment is, is to take smaller bets. So if you were to look at some of our multi-asset portfolios, um, we are a little bit closer to our benchmark in this type of a market environment. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ha- we're don't we not exposed to things that we do like. It doesn't mean we don't have views. It just means that, again, with a degree of humility, when, when the range of outcomes is really wide, you typically don't want to stick your neck out super far in either direction. You just you just want to take smaller bets. So, you know, if we were talking about our 60/40 portfolio today as an example, we're basically running that at 60/40. Uh, we're not we're not leaning into so equity. 60% as- equity, 40% bonds. Traditionally, that's been the 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 kind of long-term bellwether, yeah. Yeah, like this is the portfolio you want to be in for, you know, when you retire for the rest of your life. Correct. Maybe not for an accumulator, but like, hey, I'm going to I'm hanging it up. I'm not earning money anymore. 60-40 is a fairly, I don't want to use the word safe, but historically, um, historically, a portfolio that's historically going to provide income for you for a really long time. That's right. Yeah. And so we're just really trying to keep the ball down the middle of the fairway. Again, I mean, we're expressing some views in that portfolio, but, you know, relative to the sizing of some of those things previously, if you know, we're just, we're just trying to take smaller bets. Um, you know, so it's almost it, like, it's almost like, you you know, I've had conversations with people before about, Hey, what do you believe about the market? What do you believe about the market? And I'll share my thoughts. And they almost like, well, you don't believe anything about the market. I said, no, no, I have, I have some really strong opinions about the market. I just don't hold them tightly. Yeah. Like an open hand. Like I am, I, you know, I believe in the market long-term. I do not believe the market's always going to go up. Like there's certain things. I like certain types of investments, but I'm not holding on to them too tightly. Correct. That's when you get into, pro- that's when you get into trouble. Yeah, and I'm sure from your seat sometimes, you know, in 2022, your your benchmark was probably cash. And then 2023, your benchmark is probably NVIDIA, right? In the, in the minds of clients. In the uh, minds of clients, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's well said. You know, we, we're really just sort of, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have views. It doesn't mean we're not trying to add value to portfolios, but that it, at least in our opinion, that's the correct response to, uh, you know, a, a wide range of outcomes is you just take smaller bets until, you know, those outcomes start to reveal themselves a little bit more through time. So this this leads me to the next thing I want to talk to you about because Morningstar has kind of become known for the style box. So a lot of our listeners probably won't know what I mean by the Morningstar style box, but I bet you if you go open up your 401k, if you go log in and you're looking at investments to choose... I would say six or seven out of 10 of you are going to see this little box with a grid with nine little boxes in it. And then the port- particular portfolio, even though, even if it's not a Morningstar investment, that particular mutual fund or ETF is going to, you know, one of those little boxes is going to be, is going to be colored in. And tell me, tell me a little bit about the, the, the style boxes, what those mean. Cause this really that kind of gives us some insight into diversification, which is part of preparing. Yes. So Morningstar as a company, it, it, our roots in the 80s are really as a research and data company. That's that's how we got started. Obviously, we manage investments now ourselves and have been doing so since 2001. But going back, that's that's our our roots. And so the style box is is you know born out of that early work. So you're right. It's a it's a nine box. It's a three by three grid, and um, it's uh, essentially values core and growth in the verticals and large, mid and small 
in the horizontals. And so each of those boxes correspond where they intersect. You can have, you know, mid-cap growth stocks, or you can have, you know, large cap value stocks. And what it is is an attempt to just understand the characteristics of, in this case, the equities that you have in the portfolio without getting too technical. Essentially, the way it works is um, on a monthly basis, all stocks are sort of like you know categorized um and on the on the, the 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 dimension of value core and growth the inputs are you know things like historic price to book price to sales price to cash flow dividend yield forward price to projected earnings um on the growth see, side those of, are all those are some really good cfa metrics right there yeah exactly right. Um, <laughs> uh, on the growth side it's sort of you know sales growth cash flow growth long term earnings growth um and so it's a way to categorize companies based on those attributes and essentially not you know not always but you can think of about one third of the market cap ends up in value one third of the market cap ends up in core and one third of the market cap ends up in growth and then the um, large, mid, and small. There's no set like dollar amount market cap uh, breakpoints, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, roughly seventy percent of the market cap is classified as large, uh, twenty percent yeah. as mid, and ten percent as small. It tends to be companies with a market cap above ten billion are large. Two to ten billion is mid, and and under two billion is small. But again, those are not formulaic written into the process. Yeah. I generally say like, so, you know, if you look, if you're looking at that box, the very top line, those are large companies. I typically will say large companies. If you look at your portfolio, you've heard of, you know, five out of 10 of them, six out of 10 of them. They're, they're, yes. they're names that are familiar to you. Correct. When you get to the mid cap level, you probably only know one out of 10 or two out of 10. Yes. And then when you get to small cap, you generally don't know any of them. Right. Um, and, and the, the, the general trend is the bigger, the company, the more I'm doing air quotes here, the more stable the company they can withstand. Typically, the less. Let me let me rephrase it. The less volatile. Typically, the larger the company, the less volatile it's going to be. Yeah, you, you definitely would see higher volatility yeah. in in like small cap stocks relative to large cap stocks. Um, you know, every company is different, and you know, especially in a market environment like this, like we are looking for quality companies today. So companies with strong balance sheets. Good free cash flow um, companies that don't need to return to financial markets to finance their operations. Those mm -hmm. are the kind of companies that we we like in this uncertain market environment. Uh, so okay, so on that thought, on that thought, the companies that don't need to go back to financial markets to finance their growth. So you have growth companies in the far right. If I'm looking at the if I'm looking at the style box in the far right, growth in the far left, value. Okay. Correct. Generally speaking, growth stocks are the ones that are going to be in need of capital, right? To continue growing, they or they they almost reinvest all their capital back into the company. That's that's a typical characteristic of growth companies. Yeah, and, and this is why you typically see them paying out lower dividends than value companies, or uh, right because they are exactly as you said, reinvesting their. The, into the company itself rather than so for growth. I'm thinking like these are more could be tech, biotech, even some stuff in the healthcare, I guess would, would be biotech companies sure. that, that I'm investing in this company typically because I expect this company to be worth a lot more tomorrow than it is today. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. They're I'm over, totally oversimplifying this. Correct. Yeah. They're going to continue to grow their earnings at a, at above, let's say market rate. And, and generally value companies on the far left, 
Um, they're, they're companies that, you know, typically I'm, uh, yes, I'm, I'm investing in it because I want it to be worth more tomorrow, of course, but I'm investing in it because I'm expecting that it's going to continue that it might be trading less expensive. Yes. Right. It might be paying a dividend. They might be sitting on a bunch of cash, which means it's going to be more stable, generally speaking, than a growth company that's reinvesting all of its, all of its capital. Yeah. And so you, you, you tend to see things like PEs be lower, obviously, in the value space and the growth space. You are... So PE, real quick, price to earnings. So that's the price of the stock compared to the earnings of the company on a per share basis. Right. Yeah. Essentially, the price that you're okay. paying for a dollar of, yeah. of earnings, you, you tend to see that be lower in the value space. Um, now, obviously, as active managers, what we are trying to do is are find companies, individual companies that we think are trading below what they're fair value or their future value is. And we can find those opportunities in in sort of like any portion of the style box, right? Um, on an idiosyncratic basis, but generally like uh, from at a category level, yes, exactly as you're describing. And, and here's why here's why I wanted to talk about the style boxes, particularly growth first value, because a lot of the narrative that I've seen over the past two years, um, and I don't know, I don't know if it's just a bias on my part, but there seems to be more conversation about uh, growth in value over the past couple of years because we've seen some very, it, it almost seems like very distinct differences in the performance of growth versus value more so than I than I remember. Again, this might be like just recency bias on my part, but it seems like last year, man, if you were completely out of growth, you were doing great. Yes. This year, if you were not in growth in the beginning of the year, you got you got you know blasted. That's right. Yeah. Um... Over, let's say, since the financial crisis, growth has outperformed value significantly. Um, longer term, we expect value to outperform because you're you're buying something for hopefully less than it's worth. But since the financial crisis, growth had outperformed significantly. 2022, um, that reversed in a meaningful way. And Very so, meaningful. Yeah. yeah, you saw value start to outperform. Um, and and now this year, it's sort of you know gone back a bit the other way. But it's interesting. I mean, like, so there was a point in time, I'll take a company like Meta, which really suffered in 2022. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned, the, you know, within the style box, the companies are, are we, yeah. we do this monthly. There was a point in time where because of how cheap Meta had gotten, it actually moved uh, uh, into the value category. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and now, you know, that Meta is, you know, one of the top performing stocks this year. But it, it 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 speaks to again, right? The 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 need to sort of maintain a reasonable level of diversification and and maybe not over concentrate in just like one area of the style box for your entire portfolio. Yeah, and and that that gives a lot of insight into why is my portfolio not performing like um my my colleague who's sitting next to me. Yes. Right. Or, or why is why is so it really when you get into the when you get into the nuts and bolts of how the portfolio is positioned. It, you know that that speaks a lot to um you know performance so uh, again predict don't prepare we're not that i say we're not that smart we we're not smart enough to guess where the market's going to know exactly what we should own and what we shouldn't own I had a conversation with a client early this year they called me out of the blue and they wanted to invest in and this is this is a client nearing retirement uh had a conversation with a friend who um, was getting into AI investing? Could 
he's making thousands of dollars a day or can't lose. And I'm like, uh, you know, I heard that a couple years ago with 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 some crypto stuff. Can't lose. Like uh, you, you can lose. And and since you know, since March, probably a lot of that stuff is down. Would be my guess or April. A lot of that stuff is down. But this idea of yeah, we need we need to diversify. Let's not let's not jump on these trends. Yeah, I, it sounds basic, but it's important to remember that the price you pay for something matters. So you you can have a great asset. But at a bad price, be a bad investment. Um, mm, yeah, and you know, conversely, you can take maybe a not so great asset at an amazing price can be a, a good investment, right? And so, uh, you know, this is where like the art and science meet, um, and this is also how markets get made because on every side of trade are you know two parties that have a different yeah. different view of this particular asset that they're trading. Um, but yeah, you know, it's. It also, from my seat, you know, I, I like I, I deal a lot in portfolio construction and you know bringing different assets together. It's a sizing issue as well, right? You you can like something and you can go overweight it, but you just you, you may want to potentially temper like how much of your portfolio you kind of go into something like that. I personally, I think the AI trade, you know, for the long term, um, you know, has the power to be as transformative as the cloud, oh. as, tra- as transformative yeah. as the. Um, as Google search, like some of these, some of these things, but even still, no right. Doubt. Like, but here's, here's, here's what I find interesting. And, and I've done a little research into it and you can, you could probably speak a little bit to this is most people don't realize it, but they have AI exposure in their portfolios. If you, own, if you own any of the big names, correct. Apple, Microsoft, Google, Nvidia. I mean, they're all, they're all, they all have a AI play. A lot of the AI is going to be small cap, which is going to be more volatile. So you got to be real. You got to be real judicious in in how you make those plays. And I would even say, I don't know this for sure, but this this tends to be. I've tend to found this with a lot of a lot of trends lately. Is a lot of the development is still private money. Yes, it's money that you and I, like a lot of the AI development is being developed by private companies that you or I or most of our listeners will never have an opportunity to invest in. And by the time it comes to the market. A lot of that crazy, crazy, crazy growth will have already happened in private in private equity markets. Yeah, it's something like sixty to one ratio of private companies in the machine learning AI space to public companies. So that it's, much, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. Like you know, if you have exposure to Microsoft, Microsoft is the main corporate partner of OpenAI, the folks behind ChatGPT. So you you know you you have sort of indirect exposure in that way. Um, Google is obviously in that. Meta is in that, and then the chip makers. Uh, mm-hmm. But even indirect exposure, you know, I, I think it was Bill Gates who said, you know, with respect to technology, we tend to overestimate the rate of change in the one or two year period and underestimate the rate of change in the ten year period. This oh, is the kind yeah. of technology I think that can be sort of just a lever on productivity and growth, like across the entire market over the next, um, you know, decade and. That's where, uh, you know, even if you are somebody that mainly just has public equity exposure, you can still benefit from that in your portfolio. Um, at the same time, and this is, you know, not obviously financial advice to any individual person. You know, you take a company like Nvidia. Yes, if we could all go back to January first, we would put all of our money in that. But um, you know, you have to be cognizant of you can have a great asset at at an expensive price, and you know, the 
the bar to to think that it continues to get more and more expensive over time, you know, is is maybe a little bit high. Yeah, yeah, I like what you just said about uh, what what um what Bill Gates said. We over now. I've heard this in terms of like goal planning for us individually. We tend to overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do over over the long term. And actually, I want to end on that point and kind of circle back around where we started because I think that is almost the lesson that you wish you would have learned in school. Yes, is that wealth is built over time. Yes. Uh, right. It is. It's the accumulation of small changes, let's say, um, mm-hmm. over time that lead to really big results. And uh, yes, I, I, you know, you can uh, in any given year, you may or may not feel like your portfolio has done that much, and some years it it really won't. But when you look back over a long period of time, especially if you've, you know, been disciplined. Um, in your approach to saving and your approach to investing, then you can see tremendous uh, amounts of, of wealth gain. Yeah. In fact, here's a little hack for, for those of you who open up, whether you're a client or not, if you open up your portfolio and you feel like, oh my gosh, the third quarter just absolutely demolished my portfolio. Go look at your original investment amount. So keep your, keep your reporting. That's the thing. We talk about long-term investing. Most people get that, right? But yet we constantly want to want to look at a short-term event, a short-term reporting period. Look at, if you believe in long-term investing, look at your investments over a long period of time. Don't look at what they did last quarter or what they did last year or what they did you know, year to date. Look what they did from inception date. Where did you start and where are you now? And it's amazing to me how that one exercise relieves so much anxiety for clients when they look at that number and they're, they're amazed that, I mean, they, they think that they're down 50% from when they first started. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important to recognize like what we've experienced, let's say since the end of July is totally normal volatility. Um, if you look back over the last 45 years, on average, um, markets are up three out of four years. So like, you know, 75% of the time for on an yeah. annual basis, but on average, they experience at least uh, the average intra-year decline. So within any year, what is the average sort of like peak to trough at any point during the year is 14%. So yeah. the fact <laughs> right now that, you know, yeah, since the end of July, the markets are off maybe about 10%, again, is is absolutely totally normal levels of volatility and, you know, not at all something to be really overreacting to. I think anecdotally, you know, in, in working with a lot of advisors across the country, you know, we're hearing from, you know, my clients are trying to move more to cash, you know, um, trying to, yeah, they can get 5% now. So they're, they're just taking all their money and doing that. And I, you know, again, without being financial advice to any individual person, I think overreacting in that way can, can potentially be a little bit dangerous. Yeah, I mean, go back to our historical numbers. Well, obviously, we're not in, in in a recession, but you look at those numbers. Uh, you know, average twelve percent over the next twelve months post recession, right? Even more than that over two years. So, if you're long term, if you are a long term investor, I always tell people attach purpose to your money. Every pot of money should have purpose, right? Yes. Part of your part of your portfolio might not be long term. Okay, that's good. That that might be a good place for your cash. But if you're a long-term investor and you're looking at the long-term part of your portfolio, don't let short-term events, don't let feelings impact um, how you position your long-term assets. Mike, this has been fun, man. It's been great. Yeah, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to join you and to join your listeners. Yeah, appreciate your time and appreciate the partnership with um, with Morningstar. 
Hey, listeners, if you like what you hear, please share this across uh, across social media. Uh, you can download our um, or, or subscribe, follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. Y'all plan wisely, live confidently. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Be sure to consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Osaic Wealth Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC. A registered investment advisor. Osaic Wealth is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Osaic Wealth.